Welcome to the Distinctive Christianity Podcast, where we seek to clarify distinctions between Mormon and credo-Christian thought. I am Brendan, and I'm here once again with... Skyler. Skyler. And uh, yeah, we got a, another hopefully good conversation coming down the pipeline today. For sure. On, uh, yeah, lots of funsies. Matthew yeah. 5, Luke 6. Yes. Yeah. But before we get there, of course, I mean, I just, I got to know. Th- if you had one wish, what would it be? One wish. One wish. I want. You get one wish. Okay. This w- will tell a lot about us here. I want Professor Bill Dennison to come on this podcast. Bill. Yes. Professor if you're listening, Bill. I want you on this podcast. Yes. Please. Interview him about Boltman or Marx or yeah. I mean, he's written books about all so, sorts so, of stuff. So 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 fill fill us in on, you know, because this is a recent uh, you know, thing that's gone on in your life here. <laughs> you with Professor Bill. Yes. I, I got a I had the privilege of taking a class from him on the thought and apologetic method of Cornelius Van Til. Yeah. Yes. Best was, best uh, insight you gained from that. Oh boy. Class. Um, best insight. Oof. Well, maybe the most practical is to never take words just on the surface. Mm-hmm. What we do every week, it seems. Yeah. Yeah. He's he's great. Define uh, on that. Define your words mm-hmm. and and see the system in which they operate. Yeah, that's good. Good stuff. Yeah. Well, so that's your one wish. It is. What Man. about what about you? Yeah, the Mavericks win a championship. I mean, is that? No, no, <laughs> no. Wouldn't be that. Wouldn't be that. Uh wish prayer. Yeah, I don't really do wishes. I think I think probably that which I desire deeply enough to say, if I could have one wish, it would be that all five of my children love the Lord. Mm. And walk faithfully in Him. That'd probably be it. That's good stuff. <laughs> yeah, that, <laughs> that makes my wish yeah. <laughs> seem pretty self-centered. It's all right by comparison. You know? <laughs> <laughs> like got family I didn't make, mention. Trying to make oh, you feel wow. really guilty here. <laughs> you know, Oof, man, I'm a poor Christian here. <laughs> well, you know, we're going to learn in the lesson today. There's always room to get better, and. Uh, <laughs> You just need yes. to try harder, you just yeah. become more perfect. Yeah, and uh, you'll get there eventually. eventually. You'll be perfect eventually. <laughs> no, yeah. but but really, I mean, that's probably like something I pray for every day. And uh, you know, I just, I know I have no power to convert my children, so I just trust the Lord with that and uh, pray to Him to do it. So. Well, as we said last week, we're going to start each podcast with, uh, you know, just reading from some ancient creeds, some ancient confessions. You know, maybe we'll get a little crazy eventually and even read some modern versions of things. Mm-hmm. But uh do want to start with what we have as really the earliest creed and the faith that we would cling to, and that's the Apostles' Creed. And I just want to read the whole thing. And for most listeners, this will be familiar because it's a well-known creed, as it should be. But here's what it reads. It says, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord, 
who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead, he ascended into heaven, and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of the saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. It's amazing. Love it. So good. I believe that one started as a... Um, almost a baptismal interview. Yeah, right. Which is why the I language, whereas with the Nicene Creed, for example, it's we. Yep, it's a definitely more. I guess what is it? Classical definition of confession. Yep, that's good. Okay, so um, into the curriculum here. We are in uh, February thirteenth to the nineteenth. And of course, I will restate as I always do, the format of this podcast is we are two credo Christians who are responding and reacting to the LDS Come Follow Me Sunday School Manual, which is the Sunday school curriculum that is used in every LDS ward across the world. They're standardized. And so, you know, if you are LDS, you are studying this right now. If you are an evangelical Christian, your LDS friends are studying this right now. And when I say right now, I'm referring to February 13th to the 19th of 2023. But uh, as we say each week, even if you're not listening in real time, you're going to be able to follow along just fine um, and still glean from this. Because what we're really using, what we're really doing is we're using this curriculum as a springboard to talk about the differences that are critical between the two faiths. So this week we're looking at Matthew 5 and Luke 6. The title of this lesson in the in the Come Follow Me Sunday School manual is Blessed Are Ye. And uh, you know, we got the typical you know, beginning statements, invite the class members to share their feelings about various truths and things of that nature. And uh, we get into the teach the doctrine section. And the first section is on Matthew 5, 1 to 12, which you'll be familiar with that as the Beatitudes passage primarily. So we are dealing with the Sermon on the Mount here in Matthew 5 to 7, and also what is often referred to as the Sermon on the Plain, Luke 6, uh, whatever position you hold is not of great relevance to this particular passage as to whether or not that was the same, um, the same sermon. Uh, you know, I, I tend to lean towards the sermon on the plain, plain referring to some sort of plateau having to do with still amount and the two geographical ways of explaining where they were were different, but we're dealing with the same primary content here. Uh, but that's what we're looking at, Matthew 5, 1 to 12, Beatitudes, and the subtitle under that section for the teaching to the class in the ward is that lasting happiness comes from living the way Jesus taught. And uh, so there's this question, you know, how are Jesus's teachings different from uh, other ways that people find happiness? So compare and contrast Jesus's teachings, and then how do you find happiness, and how does that differ from the way that Jesus is saying that you can find happiness? And so we are going to work through those Beatitudes and probably take a good chunk of the podcast today to do that and just look at 
what is happiness and what is Jesus teaching in those Beatitudes and how does that differ perhaps some from what we're seeing taught in the LDS curriculum here. Uh, we go on to the next section, and it's Matthew 5, 14 to 16, uh, which, you know, worthwhile just to read that real quick because it's short. You are the salt of the earth. This is what it says in the ESV English Standard Version. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And then the subtitle for the Come Follow Me curriculum is The Savior's Disciples Are to Be a Light to the World. So there's just this discussion encouraged of what it means to be a light to the world. And then you go on to Matthew 5, 17 to 48, which is a lot of different topics that are being covered within the Sermon on the Mount. Christ came to fulfill the law anger, lust, divorce, uh, all the way into retaliation, love your enemies. Um, some of these you'll just be familiar if you're familiar with the text. If not, uh, just look at it and read it yourself, and that'd be really helpful to see what's going on here. But this is an important point that we'll cover as well. The subtitle, the main idea that needs to be put across from these passages of Scripture according to the LDS curriculum is that Jesus Christ taught a higher law that can lead us to perfection. So we can be led to perfection by obedience to this higher law. And there's a couple of important quotes that are put on at the end of the curriculum on seeking perfection and what that means. So they quote President Joy D. Jones, and uh, the quote there is, The Lord loves effort, and effort brings rewards. We keep practicing We are always progressing as long as we are striving to follow the Lord. He doesn't expect perfection today. We keep climbing our personal Mount Sinai. At times past, our journey does indeed take effort, or as in times past, our journey does indeed take effort, hard work, and study, but our commitment to progress brings eternal rewards. Let us boldly declare our devotion to our Heavenly Father and our Savior with unshaken faith in Him, relying wholly upon the merits of Him who is mighty to save. Let us joyfully continue this journey toward our highest spiritual potential. And then we've got in the uh, several quotes in the individual and family manual, which, of course, again, is the separate manual that is given to individuals and families to be studying these verses and passages throughout the week. And there in that manual... There's a question under Matthew 5.48, which Matthew 5.48, I'll just read in the English Standard Version, is you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's the language that's given there. And, of course, that's within the context of the command to love your enemies. And, uh, yeah, maybe it's worth reading the whole passage. Well, we'll we'll get there. We'll get there. But let me just read uh, the subtitle from the Come Follow Me curriculum in the Individual and Family Manual is, Does Heavenly Father Really Expect Me to Be Perfect? And then there's a quote from Russell Nelson, and he basically says, you know, the Lord taught we are not able to abide in the presence of God now, uh, wherefore, continue in his patience until ye are perfected. That's from Doctrines and Covenants 67.13. 
And then Nelson goes on to say, we need not be dismayed and if our earnest efforts toward perfection now seem so arduous and endless. Perfection is pending, and it can come in full only after the resurrection and only through the Lord. It awaits all who love him and keep his commandments. Now, that last line there is really important to catch. How do you know that you're going to get perfection? Well, it awaits all those who love him and keep his commandments. Now, maybe we ought to work backwards because we're going to spend more time on the Beatitudes and just cover this point quickly on the perfection because I know you have a lot of good stuff here, Skylar. But, man, when I read that Nelson quote, I just thought to myself, okay, it seems like he's trying to soften this idea that you need to get to to this point of perfection. Um, And I know a lot of this probably because there's lots of (laughs) (laughs) – this could be speculation, but there's lots of LDS people that are leaving the church right now. And they're leaving the church, at least from what I hear in large part, because of this constant expectation that they're supposed to live these perfect Mormon lives, you know, and that's the way that they'll often even put it is in those terms. And so Nelson seems to be trying to comfort people, you know, or at least this quote is put in here to try to comfort people. The quote is from 1995. So, you know, just to be clear there. But but the quote is put into this curriculum, I think, because they're trying to go easy on people. You know, they're trying to make it a little bit uh, more chill, I guess. You know, like, hey, you know, this Heavenly Father really expects you to be perfect right now. And it bothers me how they give these quotes of, you know, perfection is pending, we're working towards it, you're not going to get there in this life. But then it says, it awaits all who love him and keep his commandments. So you only are guaranteed perfection in the last day if you have loved him and kept his commandments. And I just think that's so depressing because how do you know? You know, how do you know if you've loved him well enough? How do you know if you've kept his commandments well enough to be perfected on the last day? And that, again, is just the hopelessness that we keep pointing out in the LDS faith. There is no gospel. There is no good news. There only ever is this, hopefully you did good enough. Hopefully you kept those commandments well enough in order to be perfected on the last day. It's very different than the gospel that we preach. But you've got a lot of good stuff on that, so I'm going to turn it over to you. Yeah, it's, well... (laughs) I think the Holland talk title, even that they quote in the seminary manual, be ye therefore perfect eventually. Of course, drawing on Matthew 548. Uh, Don't worry, Christ did it, so can you. I mean, that's kind of my summary of the quote. Uh, and he cites DNC 9313. Don't worry, even Jesus had to become perfect. Um, it's the sense. I yeah, on one hand, they it's interesting how they're trying to compromise. They're trying to distinguish the requirement for perfection with perfectionism Mm -hmm. and what they're doing is i think trying to um what kind of change the aesthetic of the point they're making without changing the substantive point instead of reconsidering what it means to be perfect who is god who is man the trinity the scriptures (laughs) all that they're saying don't worry you know, uh, you'll get there eventually. But that's that's kind of ironic, of course, of course, coming from my perspective, because if you only have one life to become perfect, yeah, um, maybe you should worry a bit. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, like, not just salvation. We're talking like you become 
gods, right? <laughs> like yep. that's the that's what Joseph Smith said in the King Follett discourse. Uh, learn to become gods yourselves. Um, I think. I mean, even just the framing here with David Ridges, whose commentary you can get at Deseret Book. They're promoting as the commentary in the New Testament for this year. I mean, he frames the whole Sermon on the Mount as enabling, right? That these righteous behaviors, quote, the righteous behaviors stressed here by the master are among those which enable baptized members of the church to obtain celestial glory and exaltation. Um, These are a series of instructions for continuing after baptism to the point of qualifying for celestial glory. Once again, not a gift. You're, you're working, you're at it. And Jesus is an example there. Yeah. He's an example. He's also teaching abstract principles by which we can, if applied, become like him and Heavenly Father, who are two different gods. Um, I mean, he says all these references to the kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven, refer to celestial glory. That's a little different. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Of course, one that stands out, his comment later on. Keeping such higher laws, this is later on in the chapter, David Riches, keeping such higher laws develops Christ-like qualities in us. These higher laws are designed by the Lord to lead us along the path toward exaltation, as stated in verse 45. In other words, this is a vital part of our education toward becoming gods. Hmm. That's not Brigham Young. That's not Joseph Smith. That's not ancient history. Go to Deseret Book. Today, yeah. by the New Testament commentary being promoted today for this current year, 2023. And that's what he says this verse is about. Yeah. Now, if that is the goal, and by the way, he reiterates it in verse 45, that you may be received into celestial glory and become gods. That's his comment on verse 45. Mm-hmm. If that is the goal, you should worry. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know how they're distinguishing this, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, they even have a section identifying Christ-like attributes in yourself. You know, take this following survey. I mean, it's it's all about what you do. Yeah. It's all about what you do. And now I know we got to be careful here because there there is a lot of sanctification and work to be done and, and trying to do things in this passage. But it must be pointed out that this is in an entirely different context, right? Mm-hmm. When they talk about celestial exaltation, even to quote George Q. Cannon from the early church, Right, August 12th, 1883, George Q. Cannon. Quote, there is not a man in this room who has a proper conception of the gospel and of the rewards attached to obedience to it. Once again, this gospel for them seems to be a higher law. Mm-hmm. So they see the Mosaic law and then the gospel law comes in and there's no gospel law distinction at all in either. Yeah, the, right? the gospel is becoming more like Jesus. Yeah, it's not mm-hmm. what Jesus has done. Right, at all. Mm-hmm. And which does not at least uh, hope that he will attain. Sorry, let me start over. There is not a man in this room who has a proper conception of the gospel and of the rewards attached to obedience to it, who does not at least hope that he will attain unto celestial glory, which means the Godhead. <laughs> like, you know, that's pretty clear um, the goal. Now, if that goal is a very perfect being and you have to become like them i'm not sure how they can some then say well it takes time yeah try to soften it up exactly especially you know you've got you got some time and hopefully 
it'll work out in the end. Right. And that's just not consistent with it the, the whole teaching. I mean, Mm-mm. the teaching is you better work your tail off in order to get there because you've only got a set number of years, however long you live on this life, and then you're going to come to the point where, well, you know, as Nelson says, you're going to find out whether or not perfection awaits you based on whether or not you have loved him and kept his commandments well enough. Yeah. You know, so so you better keep his commandments as well as you can. You better love him as well as you can. You better prove that you do because that's the only hope that you have at attaining perfection, which is perfection for them is to attain celestial glory. And, yes. And to become gods. Gods. And yeah. therefore, to soften the blow of the burden you either have to minimize what it means to be a God or exaggerate, dare I say, be narcissistic about oneself and one's abilities. Mm. Right. Um, and that's, there's not, once again, it seems like, well, they're, they're being more understanding. They're saying, be patient with yourself. <laughs> like, well, if you're, if what you're teaching is true, that's not, Telling people to chill doesn't seem to be the solution. Now, in the early in early Mormonism, they had something called multiple mortal probations, which was the Mormon version of reincarnation, meaning you have as many lives as you need. We'll put quotes. Um, I don't want to take too much time today on it. We can maybe we can do a bonus episode sometime on it, one of these bonus episodes. Mm-hmm. But you know, I'll put some links to quotes from early Mormon leaders: Orson Pratt, Brigham Young, George Q. Cannon. Hebrew C. Kimball, et cetera. Um, and, of course, for their, from their perspective, you can't do it in one life. But don't worry, you have as many lives as you need because the assumption is the gods can never be a limiting factor in your progression. Mm-hmm. So as long as you want to progress, you'll be given as many opportunities in certain lives and probations as you need to achieve it. Yeah. So, and that's how why they say eternal lives... But Jesus obtains eternal life, meaning in his resurrection, he achieved a body that won't die again, whereas we achieve bodies that continually die. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and notice, too, I mean, this kind of lurks there. I'm not saying Joy D. Jones in the quote you read believes this. I don't know. But notice how abstract it becomes, right, when she says in this manual, our commitment to progress brings eternal rewards. Notice it's not commitment to God. Mm-hmm. It's commitment to this to abstract progress, progress yeah. rooted in our own potential, rooted in our ontological equality with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Yeah. I mean, that's pretty different, right? Yep. Um, for us, the perfection required is given by Christ. Yeah. It's something he achieved that he gave us through faith. Mm. He can only be an example for them. Yeah, and let's not forget that this passage in Matthew falls within the flow of uh, an argument that Matthew is putting together, ultimately, which is to show that Jesus is the Messiah who has come to take away the sins of the world. So you have in Matthew chapter uh, chapter 1, and uh, it was in verse 21, You've got the announcement, of course, of Jesus coming, and um, it's this uh, you know angel who speaks and says, she will bear a son, talking about Mary, and you shall call his name Jesus. And then this critical line, 
for he will save his people from their sins. So Matthew is building this argument that Jesus is this Messiah who has come to take away the sins of his of his people. He has come to save them from the very thing that they cannot save yeah. themselves from. That's the whole purpose. That's the whole role. And so the Sermon on the Mount is put strategically in this place by Matthew for the reason of showing this consistent line of thinking that Jesus has come to save his people from their sins that they cannot save themselves from. So the whole point of the law in our perspective and what Jesus is doing here is he's trying to draw people to himself. He's trying to put the law on them so that they would realize I cannot be perfect to this in and of myself. So I'm going to need a perfection that is outside of me Namely, that's Jesus himself. He is the one who is perfect. He is the one who is fulfilling the law and the prophets and, and you know, every jot and tittle of that. He is perfectly fulfilling all of these things uh, to be the perfection that his people are going to need in his place. Yes, you know? and, and he's not just a teacher of the Beatitudes, which we'll get to. He's the model of them. I mean, he's, he's the one that's meek in 1129. He's the one mourning over unrepentant. Um, cities in 11, 20 through 24. He's the one who shows mercy in 9, 13, and 27. He's the one that's ridiculed as a false prophet, 26, 68. I mean, he's... Yeah, so he's what, the, what you're referencing there is that as all of these Beatitudes are listed by Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew goes on in his gospel to show Jesus is the one who did all this. Right. In the yep. same Matthew that says, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect is the same one who says, this same Jesus, the God-man, said, come unto me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That's right. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. How do you hold the two together? Yeah. He says, be perfect, all these things that are impossible to do on our own. That's right. Love enemies? What yeah. could be more unnatural to our fallen human hearts than, I mean, even here in America, so-called Christian America, right? Japanese attack Pearl Harbor. There was a congresswoman, I'm going off of memory here, so forgive me if I get some of the details right, but you'll find someone voted against going to war based on this passage. And you know what Christian America thought? That's insane. Yep. So even, even after, you know, uh, all these centuries of Christianity, how unnatural it is even to Christians here in America to live this. This is impossible apart from him working in us. So how can the same Jesus that says this says you need a righteousness greater than the Pharisees? And that's because the Pharisees were models of holiness in this society, not because they were um, the opposite. Say also, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Because he gives the righteousness he requires. Yeah. Yeah, and the standards that he makes clear in the Sermon on the Mount are impossible standards for a sinful human to live up to, and that's the whole point. You know, he he says in the anger passage, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, you will be liable to, to the hell of fire. The point isn't to read this sort of stuff. Again, down in verse 27, you have heard that it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in her heart. Again, the point is not to read this stuff and respond by saying, I need to 
try harder. Like, <laughs> yeah. you know, wow, the, the level of perfection is way harder than I thought it was from what I read in the Ten Commandments. This is going to be way more difficult, but I better get after it and do the best that I can and hope that I've loved God and I've kept his commandments well enough to be made perfect on the last day. That's not the, the point. Jesus is ramping this up to show it is impossible for you to do on your own, so you better start looking to me, the one who came to bear the yoke for you, the yoke of the law, that being so that you could be made righteous through me, yes, not by your own doing. Yes, and that's notice the divine passives. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He's not even saying they're earning it by this action. So even the attributes, the virtues we see, there's not a sense in which by virtue of their attaining these or acquiring these, they're earning yeah. the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is in breaking out of heaven. <laughs> you know, it's the kingdom of God is God's rule based on his standards, you know? And um, I like how Richard Bauckham talks about the divine passives, including in Matthew 5, 4, where he says, this is a way of speaking that attributes in action to God without directly saying so. God does X, one says X is done. So, He's, he's showing that this is a Jewish way of speaking that Jesus, of course, is exemplifying as a first century Jew. And he says, well, what the divine passive does um, is to protect God's transcendence, something that Mormonism has never affirmed. God, It protects God's transcendence. It avoids making God directly the subject of an action in this world. I think that's one way of you know getting you know, into this right mindset, right? Um, That this, even insofar as people attain these, it is by the grace of God. Yeah, so let's let's walk backwards then, since you've already kind of gone there, from this idea of perfection and this need to be perfect before God. Let's walk backwards into the Beatitudes, which are the foundation of everything that is coming in the Sermon on the Mount. Let's consider then what kind of people um, can receive this sort of perfection, uh, which, again, I think is expressed in the Sermon on the Mount. And so we have, and we're just going to work through this verse by verse, It starts in 5, verse 2. It says, And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, them being the crowds and the disciples. Verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, in the LDS curriculum, they use these beatitudes to say, these are the behaviors that you need to emulate in order to become more happy. And so I want to start by asking the question, does blessed mean happy? And one commentator who I reference for his commentary on John, he's also written a commentary on Matthew, D.A. Carson, he notes that the Greek word used in the Old Testament Septuagint has to do with a person, it has to do with the person who is favored by God. And in some sense, that may make them happy, but Carson argues that translating the word happy doesn't do very well because of the modern conceptions of the word. So he writes this, he says, as for happy, it will not do for the Beatitudes, having been devalued in modern usage. The Greek describes a state 
not of inner feeling on the part of those to whom it is applied, but of blessedness from an ideal point of view in the judgment of others. So what is your state according to the judgment of God? Are you in his favor or are you not in his favor? And being in his favor will bring a sense of happiness. It'll bring a sense of joy to know that you're in his favor. But ultimately what this is talking about to be blessed or not blessed is whether or not you are found to be within the favor of God. That's what it means. It's not about this objective or this subjective feeling, which is what is put across, of course, in the LDS curriculum. What makes you feel good? What makes you feel happy? What kind of behavior makes you feel that way? So then bend your behaviors in order to feel happier in your own life. The point of the Beatitudes is what does it mean to be blessed before God? What does it mean that you are the kind of person who is found in his favor? Yeah. Got something over there? Yeah. Well, R.T. Francis, going along with what you said, he actually translates this word happy. And yet in his commentary, he's very quick to note that it's he, he just sees it as the less imperfect English word for what he's getting at. He says, quote, This term generally, ha- happy being the term, this term generally has two psychological connotation. Makarios does not state that a person feels happy. Happy are those who mourn, which is the next verse, right? Blessed are those who mourn. It's a particularly inappropriate translation if the word is understood in that way. Yeah. But that they are in a happy situation, one which other people ought to wish ought to be able to wish to share. What is that situation? They're being given a kingdom out of heaven. That's right. In the God man Jesus. Right. And and so it, this just even this um should show that this is um this is not providing an ethical teaching by which the kingdom of God is being established. Yeah. This is describing a kingdom that's here in Jesus and those who are his as they are transformed by his sanctifying power. Yeah. So all of this in Matthew's mind is seeking to make an argument of why Jesus came, why he is the Messiah, that he is provably the one who has come that has long been awaited. So Jim Hamilton is kind of summing up uh, this is another scholar, and this is in his book, God's Glory and Salvation Through Judgment. He's kind of summing up where we find ourselves as we come into the Beatitudes in Matthew's line of thinking. And what we've seen so far is that Jesus is the seed of the woman, born of a virgin, to save his people from their sins. He comes up from Egypt. He passes through the waters. He faces down temptation in the wilderness. He gathers his fishermen. Then he ascends to the mountain to give his people a new word from God. The new David is a new Moses who leads a new exodus for a new Israel, replete with a new Sinai, all pointing toward a new covenant. And so he's laying out these beatitudes as a way of actually showing I'm the fulfillment of what was predicted in the Old Testament to come and save my people from their sins. And when I save them, I make them into this kind of a person. And so here's what's so cool. So you've got verses three to five in the Beatitudes says, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Remember, this is Jesus preaching to multitudes of people. He's saying, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. I'll read six as well. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be satisfied. Now we have already seen Matthew quote from Isaiah on multiple occasions. Listen to Isaiah 61, 
verses 1 to 3, in comparison to what Jesus just preached in the Sermon on the Mount. Isaiah 61, verses 1 to 3 says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. This is predicting this coming Messiah, this suffering servant of the Lord, this one who's going to come, and he is going to make all things right for Israel. He is going to uh, usher in the day of the Lord's favor for Israel. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. Blessed are the poor in spirit. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. Blessed are those who mourn. To proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. To comfort all who mourn. To grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Who's going to come and usher this in for the people of Israel? God, God with us, Emmanuel, yeah, the Messiah, the baby, the, the one who came God to rescue his people from their sins. from their sins. Absolutely, and and this is once again this divine passive. That's why inherit, called, receive. These are things God is doing. Yeah, He's that's doing, right. and yet He's working out His rulership. Yep, I don't know His kingship, rulership, in the lives of those near Him. Yep, in the lives of those who are clinging to Him, which is why He starts with poor. I, did you get a sense in any of the materials we went through? We went through riches, interpreter, um, engaging gospel doctrine, the seminary manual, any sense of you cannot do it. And you must cling solely, exclusively to Jesus Christ. Not at all. Not once. The exact opposite. It, it, you exact, can do you it. You can do it. You can do it. You can yeah. be like it, Jesus. It's, it's, so, it's, it's so heinous. That's right. When the whole point, the whole point is Jesus has come, and in him is the kingdom. And as you said, going along with what you said, I don't think it's a coincidence that Matthew has subdivided his text into four, or sorry, five books, mm-hmm. like Moses's yeah. five books. Yep. And with this is the ethics of the kingdom, and then it'll go to proclamation, presence, relationships, and judgment. But the, the kingdom of God is God who rules the heavens and the earth, being visibly shown to rule the earth. Jesus has come and brought the kingdom, and now we get glimpses in these in the moment of what the kingdom will ultimately be at the end. And so it's a foretaste in the present of what is to come in the future. I mean, this this is a gracious kingdom. This is a king who comes and gives of himself, and he's a king that likes to give good gifts, and he takes miserable sinners like you and me, and he pardons them, yeah, because yeah. he has earned he has earned our salvation. Mm-hmm. Um, and I love that in this, the entire morality, and this is not just of the ancient world, though, of the ancient world, but of our world, is turned upside down. We look on great people, we look on celebrity, we look on material things in this world. That's right. And what does he say? Start with blessed are the beggars. Mm-hmm. See, a beggar on the street knows their need. They know if someone doesn't give me food, you know, these are spiritual beggars who come to Christ because they, they can't do it. Whereas the expectation of a kingdom is what? 
Alexander the Great, George Washington, we might say. I mean, like, I mean, that's our expectation of a kingdom: yep. is war, yep. bloodshed, yeah, domination of other people. And he's saying he's flipping this upside down. Mm. Where do we see him, the, the kingdom of God? Like in Mark, I'm thinking. Yeah. I thought of Mark. Where do we see the kingdom of God? Do we see it in the synagogues? Do we see it from the scribes of Jerusalem? Do we see it in his own family? Yeah. No, we see it in the healing of a bleeding woman. We see it with a dead little girl, little girl rise. That's where we see the kingdom. Yeah. That's where we see the kingdom. Well, and I think, I think to just comparing this, and I think it was helpful that we worked backwards to, uh, to this point, because the LDS gospel is work to perfection. Work, work yourself hard enough that you will be considered worthy of being risen to this level of perfection on the last day. Now, Contrast that to what Jesus founds the entire Sermon on the Mount upon, which is the glorious good news of the gospel. Verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Mm -hmm. That is a present tense, Mm -hmm. meaning it's yours now. Because he's here. You're poor in spirit, (laughs) it's yours now. Mm -hmm. It's not yours once you work your way to perfection. It's yours in him. Trust him. He is the one who delivers the kingdom into your heart. Yep. He is the one who does this for those who are poor in the spirit. Now, who are the poor in spirit? The poor in spirit are those who are spiritually bankrupt. Yep. It's those who realize how empty and hopeless their situation is. That they that like you said, must beg. They like yeah. they they are the lowest of the low. Yep. And uh, you know, I think that Matthew actually gives an example of what he's talking about here in his own story. When he shares Matthew, he shares his own story in Matthew 9, verses 9 to 13. It says, as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? It mattered who you shared a table to eat a meal with in the ancient world. Uh, That was a sign of approval. That was a sign of welcoming, right? But when he heard it, he said, "Those." this is Jesus, when he heard the Pharisees, that's what they were saying, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, <laughs> yeah. but the sinners. Yep. Right? So yeah. who are the poor in spirit who received the kingdom of heaven, who it is theirs now? It is those who realize how spiritually bankrupt they are. Yeah. I cannot reach perfection. I need Jesus to save me. Listen, if you think that your life is supposed to just be doing your best to measure up to the standards that Jesus lays out here and hoping that you're good enough on the last day, what I hope you see is that if you've made yourself well enough that you think you'll be able to get to Jesus, you're the one who does not need a physician. Those who receive the kingdom are the ones who realize it's when I'm sick. You know, it's while I was yet a sinner that Christ died for me. That is the point at which the kingdom comes when you look to him and you trust him alone. 
to be the one who delivers it to you. Right. I mean, it's, this is, this is once again, it's not a sense of in this passage. Um, and I'm going off of Terry Johnson, uh, who those who listen to Jason's interview will know this guy. Um, and he wrote a book when grace transforms, I'll put it in the show notes, the character of Christ's disciples put forward in the Beatitudes. And this is how he covers this poor in spirit passage in part. We should understand in this, uh, this in the sense of consequence rather than reward. Once again, this is, you know, there's no sense in the Greek that, oh, once you become this, then you get this. Yep. It's not, you know, that's not it. He's describing the kingdom working itself out in the life of the believer. So it's consequence rather than reward. In no sense do they merit the kingdom, but being what they are, they possess it. To whom does the kingdom of God belong? The kingdom of God belongs not to the powerful, not to the rich, not even to the self-righteously religious and moral. The kingdom of God is given freely to those who are utterly undeserving, so long as they know themselves to be such. That's, that's the kicker. As we have seen, by theirs, we should understand theirs alone. To whom is the kingdom of God given? To those who are humble enough to acknowledge their unworthiness to receive it. He cites Isaiah 66, Isaiah 57. Then he says, The ethical demands of the Sermon on the Mount are not the conditions for entrance to the kingdom of God that people can achieve themselves. Carson says, uh, all must begin by confessing that by themselves they can achieve nothing. So, you know, it, it's, it, I think, let's say you have a patient that has pancreatic cancer and the doctor just found out. What's more loving? To tell them the truth or to just give them positive, feel-good advice? Be happy. Just, you know, Mind, mind over matter um, and deceive him and think it, well, he'll, he'll feel happy and therefore, what? there is, we, we want the doctor that tells the truth. And Jesus and the scriptures tell us the truth about who we are. We are unable to respond. We are not injured in error. We are dead in sin and yeah. trespasses. And apart from God, we cannot even respond to the working of the Spirit. But when we do respond by grace, we see it worked out in these, and we should seek these attributes. And that's what's so hard about responding to the the manuals this week, is that so much of it is try hard, try hard. And it's like, I don't want to be heard as saying, never try. (laughs) But apart from the grace of God, and by God, I mean the triune God in the second person of the Trinity who took on flesh, Mm-hmm. For his people, there is no hope. Yeah. And even as Isaiah taught, your righteousness will be of as filthy rags. Yeah. And so what we are saying is that those who obey the commandments of the kingdom are those who are citizens of the kingdom by way of their faith in the Messiah who has come to rescue them just to say that in a way that's consistent with the message of Matthew without even pulling in other passages of scripture that would bring a lot of clarity. Um, So yeah, going along with even what we've just been talking about, then blessed are the poor in spirit. And then the next verse four is blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Well, what are they mourning again? You know, dig deep into the history of Israel. This is referring to Israel recognizing I think they're covenant breaking. That's what mourning 
would refer to in the Old Testament Jewish mind, when they when they break God's law, they break covenant with Him. They they finally realize that they have been disobedient to Him. The response is mourning. Yes. You know, we we've been walking through as we've mentioned even in previous weeks Ezra, yeah. and go look at Ezra chapter nine and chapter ten when Ezra learns that Israel is breaking covenant with uh, their God in his land already once again, he he tears his garments, he falls to his face, and he weeps. Yes, He mourns. And then by a movement of the Spirit of God, people join him, and eventually there is a massive crowd of people who are mourning. They are weeping. And the reason they are weeping is because they realize that they have sinned against their God. They've broken covenant with him. They haven't been obedient to him. And uh, I think this alludes back even to, you know, because it says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. I think this alludes even back to Isaiah 40, verse 1, says, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended. Listen to this, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all of her sins. What is the comfort? that's brought to the people of Israel. It's their part of their sins being pardoned, this forgiveness occurring, right? And then of course, recall back even to Isaiah 61 again, and all the language there that's used for uh, Israel being uh, people who are mourning, uh, but then comforted Isaiah 61 two to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. That's why the Messiah comes. He comes to be the comfort for those who are mourning for their sin. And so the only hope for mourning to turn into comfort is to know that you're forgiven after you have broken God's commandments, after you have, you know, after you feel the full weight of your sins. The only comfort that a person who has come to that level of mourning and grief, the only thing that can bring them comfort is to know that their sins are forgiven. So, so mourning in this sense, is a brokenness over sin, and the comfort comes by knowing you're forgiven. And remember, like Matthew is recalling, Jesus is preaching these things, Matthew is recalling these things in order, and all of this in every single gospel is leading to the death, resurrection of Jesus. You know, that's what it's all leading towards, is the, the need for this substitution to take place, where our sins are punished, you know, all of our sins placed onto Jesus punished by God in the person of Jesus and his crucifixion so that we can have assurance of the forgiveness of our sins because our sins have been punished onto Jesus. You know, he, he is the one who received our punishment. And so our forgiveness is only found in him. That's the comfort that you need. Yeah. And that comfort, once you receive that in the gospel, is what ultimately leads you to begin to walk a new life that does desire to obey the commands of Jesus. You got anything else on that? Yeah. I mean, so we went over some of the LDS, you know, um, what, uh, it almost feels like a gym teacher or something, spiritual mentoring. I don't know what to call it. Yeah. Well, compare that to just Terry Johnson's application. And I'm just going to list the bullet points. One, we become poor in spirit through understanding the greatness of God. Two, we become poor in spirit through understanding the holiness of God, recognizing that gap. 
Three, we become poor in spirit through understanding the grace of God. In that though we deserve hell, and we, we cry out, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Yet he, by his unbelievable grace, has made wretched sinners that didn't deserve it children. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's um, I don't know. The systems are so different, it's almost hard for me to think of where to focus. Yeah. Are you mourning your sin? Have you mourned your sin? Right. Have you ever been broken, poor in spirit? Have you been to a low place where you feel like you're not measuring up? God's comfort is for you, and mm-hmm. it's in Christ, knowing that you are made perfect by his perfection and not by yours. You're counted righteous by his perfect righteousness being credited to you. Second Corinthians five twenty one. Go look it up. That's how you are counted righteous by Christ's righteousness that's given to you as if it were your own so that you are counted perfect by God, not because you're perfect, but because Christ is perfect and you're in him by faith. Right. We see this throughout the gospels too, right? With, I mean, some based on Leviticus, some tradition, the impurity was seen to come through touch, right? Come through eating the wrong food, some of which is scriptural, by the way, but um, at least Old Testament scriptural. But with Jesus, the holiness goes the other way. It's not just that Jesus himself is not impacted by that, but that his righteousness goes the other way. Mm -hmm. And he's making the impure pure, right? But if you don't get that foundation right, if you don't get justification, you don't have this concept of the one God and you're not that God, coming down into the mud in a broken and fallen world to save us in our sin. Yep. There is no point to this workout program. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I think this is seen even in the criticism of the Pharisees. Once again, they're not the worst of the worst. They're the best of the worst. I like how the Westminster Confession breaks down righteous action because this is something that people will miss. Because, I mean, even look at the parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee. I fast, I tithe. Are these bad things in themselves? Well, obedience, according to the Westminster Confession, includes pure motive, right manner, and then God-centered goal. And if you only have one of the three, that's not real righteous action. And since we have fallen in sin in Adam... Apart from the new birth, apart from God himself giving us a new heart and writing the law on the heart, including this, you're not going to be righteous. And you should fear hell. And that's one thing, too, that was not mentioned in any of these sources. Hell. (laughs) Jesus talks about hell here. (laughs) And this is not some just metaphor like Aesop's fables. Hell is coming to the sinner. Mm Mm-hmm apart from the mercy of God. So if you have not, yeah, as you said, been aware of that gap, aware of your need, that you are a beggar, people say, you are enough, right? What do the people say? The answer is within. You're perfect in yourself. All these new age slogans that are a bunch of bull. Gospel assumes the opposite. Mm -hmm. We are not, we confess we're not enough. 
Yeah. We confess that God is holy and we aren't. Yeah. We confess that we can't do it apart from him. And that's why blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of God. They know their need. Yep. And just as the doctor who tells the truth about someone having cancer, it is liberating once you just recognize that truth. Yeah. It is liberating. Yep. There is a freedom to it. And that's the thing. Christ, God has provided a savior. And who are we to then just turn this into a workout program for ourselves and not be committed to God, but be committed to some abstract notion of progression? Yeah, I think, too, that plays right into the next attribute that we see given in the Beatitudes. Blessed, blessed are the meek. Blessed are the meek, for, for they shall inherit the earth. And, of course, meekness is, is to have a low view of yourself. Right, yep. it's yep. uh, it's a, it's a form of humility. Um, you know, Car- Carson writes in his commentary: the meek, not the strong, not the aggressive, not the harsh, not the tyrannical, will inherit the earth. It's going to be those that have a sense of meekness, a sense of lowliness yep. about them. Um, come to me, all you who are, you know, heavy burden, yeah. because he, Jesus, says, "I am lowly in heart." Right. Yeah. Um, that's very different than what's, you know, you even had a quote in there from, uh, Jared Anderson on, on kind of viewing this as a yeah. sort of workout program. Yeah. Right? Do you want the quote? Yeah. Yeah. Here's just one. Jesus's teachings get at the heart of the gospel. Be good. Be happy. Be whole. The tricky thing is we humans are terrible at predicting what will make us happy and well, which is why it is so important to internalize the principles of the gospel. We become good as we practice goodness. <laughs> um, and of course he talks a lot in there about some of these abstract principles. Once again, not a concrete savior, the new Moses, the new Sinai <laughs> that yeah. we see here. Um, it's, it's self love. It's the secrets to living well. Now it's, you know, see, I, I remember you reading something about even like, comparing comparing it to a workout coach sort of a thing yeah um, <laughs> yes he said that the sermon on the mount is training jesus is our trainer this is soul training so <laughs> it, once again it's not entirely wrong it's just yeah but the idea uh, you see in there is that you know the the whole teaching of the sermon on the mount is so that jesus can kind of be next to you cheering you on so that you can get stronger and be better. And that's what you see all throughout the LDS teaching is you are working towards being stronger, more, more aggressive towards your righteousness, right? You're, you're trying to attain a certain goal that you need to reach by grit and effort and do, do, do. And that's the opposite of meekness. Yes. You know, meekness is recognizing just, just how weak you are in and of yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you, you need God to save you. You need a Messiah to come and save you. And that's who is going to inherit the earth. It's those that realize that, you know, you don't get there by being strong enough. Yeah. Um, you get there by your dependence upon God, who is your strength. David Ridges uses this verse to say, well, it says in DNC one thirty eight through nine, that the earth will become the celestial kingdom. So these are all references. Yeah, so to that's this. another problem, right? Is, well, what do you mean? They don't let the text the speak. What about the other, yeah. what about the other planets? <laughs> it's yeah. I mean, it's so much of it. I mean, the seminary manual, the savior taught how people could be happy. 
And, you know, it's how, you know, identifying Christ-like attributes in yourself, take the survey, workout plan, ask them to learn what it means to think about how that attribute can lead to their happiness. Um, they have a learning activity, increasing in happiness. When have you been most happy? I mean, it's, it's so self-centered. And though, though Machen is responding, I, I should say, I want to quote just a little bit from Jay Grass and Machen's um, The Person of Jesus. These are radio addresses on the deity of the Savior, which I highly recommend. And he has a, a chapter on the Sermon on the Mount. And, of course, he's aiming at old liberals, right? But so much is very relevant to this approach that we see so often, right? Was uh, This is Machen. Was Jesus a mere man, a leader into a higher and better type of religious experience? Or was he the eternal God, Son of God, become man, to save us from the guilt and power of sin? You know, Jesus, um, he says... Do the Gospels represent Jesus not merely as an example of faith, but as the object of faith? That is, they represent Jesus not as merely saying, have faith in God like the faith which I have in God. Or we could say, have these attributes like I do. Here, I'm, I'm setting the example. I'm teaching you these abstract eternal principles by which you can perfect yourself. No, he says, have faith in me. Right? Come unto me. Um, and keep in mind, in the context, as Machen points out, that the object of a truly religious faith is in none other than God. And yet Jesus says, I say, Jesus is, you know, judging the destinies of all men. You know, So I just think, yeah, I mean, it's, it's so different that yeah. we can get caught up in the sanctification and think, well, let's kumbaya, we can just agree. Yeah. But... They don't have the trial on God. There's no gospel. There's no law. It's defined by the Bible, as we can get into a little later, yeah. with their hermeneutical principle. No, this is this is not a kingdom coming out of down out of heaven. This is something they're building, and then they've turned it in. They've turned inward, like our culture, where it's just this Gnostic self exploration mm -hmm. that's defining these attributes for them, yeah. rather than Jesus defining these attributes from a God centered biblical worldview. Yep. I just want to shoot through some some of these other ones, and then, uh, I mean, just because we are getting a little low on time, run back to any final comments that you want to make. But um, just to continue emphasizing the sense that the Beatitudes are really an expression of Jesus coming to save us and what he does in us by way of his messianic ministry. Um, that is, of course, uh, all leading up to the cross and his resurrection. But we see, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And I would just point out to you again that the only way that you're going to hunger and thirst for righteousness truly is if you've come to realize how deep your sin truly is. So unless you've been lowered to realize how hopeless you are, you're not going to hunger and thirst for righteousness in the way that we're talking about here. But remember, back in Matthew 3.15 in the story of Jesus' baptism, who is the one who is fulfilling all righteousness? Talk about those who bless, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Who's the one who's fulfilling all the righteousness that's required? Yep. yep. It's Jesus. Mm -hmm. He came to fulfill all righteousness, to fulfill the law, to do the works of the law, to gain the favor of God so that he could be, again, that substitutionary sacrifice, at which point we receive his righteousness by our faith in him, realizing, oh, he died for me. He gave himself for me. Go read Galatians. You'll see this richly represented all throughout Galatians. 
but it's by the work of the Messiah that our people are uh, people are are going to come to know this righteousness and uh, and eventually to become a righteous people who do desire to see justice done in the world. But that's because of the transformation that Jesus does as he d- completes his uh, messianic ministry. And then we see blessed are those or blessed are the uh, merciful for they shall receive mercy. Who are those that can be merciful? It's those who have received mercy, yeah. right? I mean, we even remember in the Lord's prayer just a little bit after this, Father, you forgive know, us. forgive us our trespasses as we have forgiven those who've trespassed against us, mm-hmm. right? So, so it's those who have received mercy that can be merciful. Mm-hmm. Um, so the only way you're going to truly be a merciful person is if you realize how merciful God has been to you, and yeah. that blows you away. Yep, it reminds right. me of Romans 4 where Paul talks about justification, salvation. If it's a wage, it's earned. Yep. If it's a gift, it's received. Yep. And once again, who are those who have received mercy? Yep. This is not something you earn. This is not, I mean, this is where the paradigm should, if it hasn't already, just break down the yeah. obvious paradigm. Yep. Then the next one is blessed are those, or blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. There even is a line in the curriculum. I can't remember if it was in the Sunday school manual or in the individual and family manual, but there was an exercise that was saying, what are the ways that you need to be more pure in heart so that you can see God? Because yeah. it's only the yeah. pure in heart who are going to see God. So again, that. it's like you've got to measure up to some standard or whatever mm-hmm. it means to be pure enough in heart so that you can see God. And of course, we remember the Shema, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. The Shema talks There's about the heart. Mm-hmm. It, well, that too. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Which God are you seeing? Yeah. But, but yeah, uh, according to the Shema, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, mm-hmm. right? Um, do people do that? Right. Every moment of every day. Lo- you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, no, mind, no, and strength. No. <laughs> every moment of every day. No, do they? Do we? You're perfect. Do that. No. Oh. No. <laughs> wow. I, you know, I, I just, I think it's funny too that, you know, with all this burden, yeah. Once again, they're they're like, but we're not perfectionist. Well, maybe you should be. I don't yeah. know. Yeah, <laughs> it's, that's like a pretty high bar. But the idea of the heart, of course, in the Jewish mind, was the deepest, most inner part of you. Mm-hmm. you like there is a there is an there is a inner deep inner purity. And the problem of the Old Testament over and over again proves that Israel is not pure in heart. Right. right? The, the, there's a deep need that is there, and that is why Jeremiah says in Jeremiah thirty one thirty one to thirty four says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. Now listen to this. And I will write it on their hearts. So who are going to be the pure in heart? Is it those who try hard enough? Right. No, it's those that God calls to be his people who he writes their law, his law on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. So who are the pure in heart? It's those that God makes pure in heart. Yes. It's not you make yourself pure in heart and thus earn the favor of God. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, you need to be made pure in heart by God, and that's the only way you're going to see God is if he makes you pure in heart. 
And of course, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And again, I would just remind you that uh, Jesus is the Prince of Peace, but the peace that he ultimately brings is peace with God and in him. So uh, that's that's the kind of peace we're talking about, ultimately. It's uh, peace with God that is needed. It's mm-hmm. not being somebody who is a peaceful person here being on nice. this earth. But that will be a ramification of it, right? But yeah. ultimately, this is talking about a deeper need to be at peace with God because we're hostile toward him. On the interpreter episode, this is where they said that don't be contending. Don't be contentious. Quote, that is totally opposed to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I just, so yes, peace biblically understood, but not peace culturally understood by LDS who prioritize comfort over truth. Yep. I know it's a hard way to put it, but it needs to be said because, they, they, I mean, is it not Jesus who's contending here? That <laughs> he contends throughout the gospel? <laughs> you know, does he just go around saying, let's just be nice, it'll be nice, and we'll all be nice, and yeah. be happy? <laughs> is that this Jesus? No, well, it isn't. Yeah. Well, I mean, Jesus says, Matthew 10, 34 to 39, do not think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I've not come to bring peace, but a sword. Wow. For I've come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me and whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. That's yeah. in Matthew. Yeah. That, that is the same author. According to the lady on the interpreter, I wonder if she'd see that as being totally opposed to the gospel of Jesus Christ because I don't know maybe yeah maybe they know better than jesus Apparently, jesus as. christ was opposed to the gospel of jesus christ if that's what the gospel right. of jesus christ is and, and yeah. I, I, th- that goes to the core of what we're trying to do here right jude i think it's jude 4 verse 4 where yeah. it, it literally contend says this word for the, contend yeah. for the faith delivered once for all not with an apostasy once for all to the saints and again i want to make clear that the only way that you're made a peacemaker is by the miraculous work of god yes in your heart because you are hostile towards God. So that's your fundamental problem. You need to be made at peace with God. And uh, and then that's the only way that you're going to learn to be at peace with others. But who are those that you're made at peace with? And this is an important question to, to ask. I think Paul gets at this in Ephesians. And of course, Ephesians 2, at the beginning of that, chapter, you have the beautiful passage about being dead in sins and trespasses, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, who is now at work among the sons of disobedience, in which we all once walked in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. We were by nature children of wrath. So the beginning of Ephesians chapter two is highlighting that every single person is born of this world dead in their sins. And because we are dead in our sins, we are hostile toward one another, yep. naturally, hostile Mm -hmm. toward one another. And the only way that we can truly be made at peace in the way that Jesus is talking about is actually highlighted in the Jew-Gentile interactions with one another that come up later in chapter 2. And, of course, I, I should finish the thought. You were dead in your sins, but God, being rich in mercy, made us alive together with Christ. By grace we have been saved. So the only way that we can be saved, you know, out of our hostility toward God is by God's rich mercy toward us. 
Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. So have you been raised up with Jesus by God's miraculous work in you, making, of course, peace with him by the work of Christ, who resurrects you from the dead, spiritually speaking? But that is what leads into Paul saying, well, here's how this causes Jews and Gentiles who hated one another to be at peace with one another. It says in verse 13 of chapter 2 in Ephesians, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. Who's your peace? It's Jesus. Jesus. He himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh to the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law and commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. Now listen to this. It might reconcile us both to God, we were both broken in relationship with God. We were not at peace with God. Jesus came. The work he does reconciles us both with God in one body. How? Through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. In other words, we are reconciled to God. We are made at peace with God by the work of Jesus at the cross, and that it is by his sacrifice that we are both made one man by our faith in him, right? We believe in Jesus uh, we believe in the gospel. We believe that he came. He died for our sins. He did that for us. And that unites us to one another and kills the hostility that might be between us because we are both in Christ. So to be at peace with others is to recognize that that peace ultimately only comes on the deepest level when others are believing the same gospel that we are. Mm-hmm. You, your greatest need is you need to be at peace with God. And once you're at peace with God, there's going to be a peace between us that will not exist there so long as you're believing a different gospel than I am, because I will be contending for a faith that you hate, and so there will be hostility. Mm-hmm. Now, that doesn't mean that, again, Christians go around being a jerk for yeah. any and every it, reason. Yeah. That's not Needlessly. the point at all. Uh, but ultimately, to be a peacemaker is to be one who declares how you can be at peace with God. Right, and, you know, sometimes the war is happening, and... People are just not seeing it, you know? So they might feel that as contention, some of, or a lot of what we've said today. They might feel that as contention, and then soon that means it's not true. But we're telling the truth. And yeah. sometimes you got to tell the truth. Just because you feel contentious doesn't mean we're violating what you just articulated. Yeah. But in matters outside of proclaiming the truth of the gospel, we will seek peace Absolutely. with people. Yes. We, we will not seek to be contentious Mm-mm. over matters that are not central to the gospel. Absolutely. And that ought to characterize a Christian. Absolutely. And Christians historically have been some of the best minds. Of course, they've been sinners too. But they've been some of the best at limiting, trying to limit um, war crimes, right? Just war, limiting even the wars that do happen. Uh, you wish they'd been more successful, but... Um, still, it shows that it's coming out of a mentality that this does have social implications yeah. that we want to see as the kingdom continues to inbreak yep. over time. Yep, that's good. Last words? Yes. Go for Quick it. bullet point, just because yep. it should be said. Um, people think, I, I think if you were just going through this curriculum, listening to these podcasts, you might get this impression that the law of Moses is somehow bad. And... Of course, we, neither of us would say that, regardless of how we connect the covenants. And I just want to point out that even the law of the Old Testament, the Ten Commandments, is built on God redeeming a people out of Egypt that didn't deserve it. Mm-hmm. And he even says, it's not because you're greater or more beautiful than other people. 
I've come in my mercy, took it out of people. And then, of course, eventually in the story, right, leads them to Sinai, where they get um, the law revealed, right? Yeah. And um, I think that imagery is going on here. And yes, there's Sinai temple imagery. I just want to point out that, as we've said many times, and we'll continue to say, biblical temple theology is not LDS temple theology. So just because there's temples, it doesn't mean they can smuggle in their worldview without defending that, right? I, um, in fact, I really like this Matthew Henry quote um, where he says, um, when the law was given, the Lord came down upon the mountain. Now the Lord went up. Then he spoke in thunder and lightning, now in a still small voice. Then the people were ordered to keep their distance. Now they are invited to draw near. A blessed change. So we see this heightening of talk of judgment in hell in the New Testament, but we also see a heightening of the grace that was there in the Old Testament. Yeah. Um, and, and for those who say, well, this is just the... No, the crowds are there as we see at the end of seven. Yeah. Okay. Uh, number two, the kingdom of God, this is a, I'm just going to read this really quick. This is another abstraction that happens in the curriculum. They rarely talk about the kingdom of God, which is funny because in early Mormonism they do, yeah. but it's a kingdom they're building. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just think, no, 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 the emphasis is not on the kingdom, it's on God in his ruling. I think R.T. France does this really well. Uh, just read this paragraph. If the kingdom of God means God being king, then to abbreviate it to the kingdom is to focus on the wrong one of the two nouns. To speak of kingship without saying who is king is to speak only in a vague abstraction which can have no specific reference in itself. It can mean what? America, the Constitution, whatever. The kingdom is about as meaningless as the will or the power used alone without a reference to whose will or power is in view. To make the point in terms of a familiar biblical text, Yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory. Does not mean that there are antecedent self-existent things called the kingdom, the power, and the glory, which have come into God's possession. It means simply, you are the king, you will power, and you are glorious, right? God. It is a statement about God, not about the kingdom in the abstract. Thus, the noun which determines the meaning of the phrase, the kingdom of God, is not kingdom, but God. It points to God in control, God working out his purpose. I thought that was important to point out. Yeah. Last thing, I'll hurry on this. This was, of course, um, not at the front of the commentary. This is David Ridges, and I think this is important for our listeners to hear because he finally is clear as to what's controlling his interpretation of the Bible. We've already seen that they always throw in JST, Joseph Smith's so-called translation, in the Book of Mormon, and you know, quotes from general authorities. Here, he literally articulates a hermeneutical point on verse 32 about divorce, which we won't get into, but just listen to this. This is under the heading, Follow the Brethren. David Ridges. A very important principle about following the brethren, our first presidency, and the Quorum of the Twelve can be taught here. The principle is, the current practice of the brethren under the direction of the Lord, constitutes the correct interpretation of the Scriptures. Well, even if you don't completely understand verse 32, you can understand the brethren. The principle is, what do the brethren do? Do they ever allow a worthy divorced person to be sealed to another spouse in the temple? Answer, yes. Would they allow such a thing if such sealing led automatically to adultery? Answer, no. It would be a mockery of most sacred ordinances. 
Conclusion, there must be some things we don't understand about verse 32. I thought that was too clear to, to not pass up, that they're not approaching, this is clear, everybody needs to hear this, they're not approaching the scripture to be taught by it. Mm-hmm. They're not. They have a worldview based on a man named Joseph Smith and are bringing it and playing word games to make it fit into that worldview. Yeah, That's why... I'm not sure. And if there's an exception out there, I would love to hear about it. I wonder if there was ever, ever, from Joseph Smith till today, a single Mormon or LDS who had their mind changed because of a biblical teaching. Mm. I want, I'm, I'm, I'm making a pretty bold claim. I need one example to disprove. Right? Yeah. I'm doing an absolute negative. To make the point, and even if there's one that might kind of be the exception that proves the rule, right? Yeah. The fact of the matter is, and this is what's so unfortunate, they get in the way. This worldview, this man, they, they are not they are not a people of the book. Mm-hmm. They're a people of Joseph Smith in his imaginations, yeah. in his lies. And I don't think, once again, that might be contentious or whatever, but I think it's the truth. And you don't need to take my word for it. Read the warnings about false prophets. Study the Bible. Read what it says on its own terms and stop letting what they say get in the way or what you want get in the way or this kind of new age self-centered approach that kind of just sits there in LDSism so often get in the way. If you want to know about the real Jesus, let him be him yeah, and come to him and learn. But right there, Clearly, it's not even just the teachings of the brethren. It's what they do that determines the, quote, correct interpretation of the scriptures. Yeah. Wow. Yep. So there's a call there, right? There's a call to consider who the true Jesus is on the basis of how he has revealed himself, which is in his word. And uh, don't, don't step back from that or, you know, shy away from it or get, get upset. Like, you know, here, here, not only our perspective, but the historic Christian perspective on how we know who Jesus is. You got something to close us out on there? I, uh, I just, my, my plea is to let the Bible speak. I mean, I, I don't know how to end it any other way. It's a pretty good way to end it. (laughs) (laughs) We'll see y'all next week. We appreciate y'all listening. Feedback is always welcomed. If you have anything that you would like to let us know, distinctivechristianity at gmail.com is where you can reach us. Have a good one.